Hey, do you want to be a DJ? I want to be a DJ! Hello everybody, welcome to episode 2 of Varsky's I Want to Be a DJ podcast. I'm your host Varsky, it'd be weird if I wasn't in the freaking name. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. That's all I'm asking for guys, that's all you got to do to help me out for now. Get them reviews in, subscriptions, it all helps. It all helps in building this podcast to be something greater. As I sit here with my coffee in hand in the I Want to Be a DJ podcast hub, I look out the window and it's snowing. <laughs> well done, well done, Snow. A couple of months too late. But anyway, to celebrate the release of this podcast, episode one was a couple of days ago. I'm going to do two episodes a week for the next two, three weeks. And I'm really, really excited for this week because on this episode, we have none other than the legends that is the Y Boys. That's right. We got Ed from the Y Boys giving his insight on how he became a DJ, where music was. And honestly, it's as this podcast says an education, a celebration, and a true account of how we live. And I can't think of a better interview to kick the interviews section of this podcast off with this. This is me with Ed from the White Boys. Enjoy. So it gives me um, real pleasure to introduce to you guys our first of my interviewees on this show, someone who I've admired for a very long time, and as I've got to know, uh, I have just become humbled with their, with, the, with their help. I've always been able to call on them every time I needed them. We've actually been to, we've been to their studio. So, ladies and gentlemen, on the I Want to Be a DJ podcast, I give you White Boys. What's going on, Ed? Oi, oi, mate. Oi, oi. How's it going, sir? I'm very well, mate. Uh, first of all, I know you're busy, and I, and I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out to get on this show with me. It means, it means the world, and I think, I think um, you know, it, it really does. It makes, you've made me a very happy man by doing this. No, thanks for thanks for having us on here. Thanks for having us on here. Uh, Jim White Boy um, is working madly in the studio. That's right. Yeah. The other side of the, on the other side of the world right now. So, but he sends his love and uh, yeah, just wants to big you up. Obviously, if people didn't know, highly got ratings for you guys. Have obviously released some of your original material on our record label and uh, have been a close fan of, of what you guys do for a number of years so yeah it's good, good to be involved in the show thank you so much ed and yeah big up jim we miss you mate ed right let's um let me get to the crux of this i basically i want to i want to dissect the history of y- yourself and the wide boys journey okay and i want to start right at the beginning so before there was the wide boys and t- you know before you what came first the producer or the dj so it was actually DJing. Well, it, it's saying that, for, I mean, my story's slightly different to Jim's, but I had piano lessons, very sort of basic and only sort of, um, you know, very simple stuff from an early age. But we had, uh, but, but didn't really follow it through. I had some guitar lessons as well, again, but didn't really get anywhere with them. But what happened was we had just this old battered up organ uh, that with uh, that my family had inherited from from like a great aunt somewhere along the line that literally didn't want this thing or or have it uh, in her house anymore. So we inherited that. So I just used to not play Mozart or Beethoven or anything like that, but just used to muck around with the sounds 
and we always had that. And then one Christmas, I can't remember when it was, but I was young. I got a Casio keyboard, which had some. Uh, that, for me at that time I had some sick presets like <laughs> and about 20, 20 presets and, and my sister which I was pretty jealous of at the time had a Casio keyboard where you could it was about less than a foot long it was this white thing and you could put in a little cartridge which had little which had songs which you could sort of play along one handedly to it I think it only had about 20 keys on it but at the time was really yeah it was immense so so that was sort of always bubbling but i was just mucking around not not with production and then and then one of my friends he his name was jason jason mo and we'd we'd been to uh we'd been to primary school together then i'd gone off to a few different schools and then we came back to the same secondary school and he was like a proper gadget freak and had like everything before anyone else. Like he had the first pair of like Nike Air Jordans and, and like Air Max. Like when all of us were like rocking high techs because because we, <laughs> we, we we couldn't afford like we couldn't afford it. Like he was coming in with like Jordans and stuff like this. Basically, he somehow got some Technics, and and like we weren't like before this. I was into like. I was into music, but it was probably like 80s synth pop that my mum was playing and, and and stuff like that. Yeah, so I was going to ask that. What what music were you brought up on? Yeah, my stepdad loved classical music, so he was always rocking either classical music or the Eagles or something like that. So, and he used to he used to be proper into his music. He had like you know when the first disc changers came out and and you could have like six discs. In, I remember. In, he, he, I think he must have had like one of the first ever ones because yeah, he, he, he and his CD collection like you didn't go near there. It was just an unspoken law in our house that that's dad's like that's dad's music. Stay stay away. Just <laughs> um, but my mum was was into like all sorts of stuff like eclectic. But what happened was she had a record player, not a deck, just you know a standard record player, and I just used to muck around with her vinyls and just break her needles by badly scratching hi-fi decks. So music was distilled in you from an early age, as with most of us. Uh, and it was always a wide, a wide cross-genre thing. It was never like, it was always a bit of everything. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I guess you know. So, where was music then? I said, where was commercial music? Where was dance music at this time? It was underground. Like, I mean, when when I was first, like when I actually first started properly DJing, there was something in my mind was like, if it's commercial, I don't want anything to do with it. If it's anywhere near the radio, I don't want anything to do with it. So, so I was into sort of underground hip hop. And then, and then quickly on from that into like rave music. Right. So, so artist-wise in the underground hip hop scene, who was it? I was into like Hijack, Silver Bullet, quite a lot of British. Like, and this was like thanks to my my friend Jason, uh, who I mentioned earlier. He had like he had quite a good knowledge of like what was going on. And like, I did like NWA and Ice T. And because I was really young, it was sort of like with the swearing and like. Yeah. <laughs> I like, was just about to say like, that. <laughs> like, you know, rebellion type vibes, but I did really when I actually got to understand music I, I, I wasn't able to relate to it like it was cool and everything but like I could relate more to the British hip hop and and stuff like Hijack I really liked the stuff that they were talking about 
Okay, so when the era of rave kind of came to your life, yeah. were you were, had you touched a pair of decks by this point? Were you aware of what the opportunities and possibilities were about being a DJ? Um, it was quite cool. Like my parents, like my mum and stepdad, were really they just encouraging on anything that I really wanted to do. And it was weird, but I was actually going raving from a very young age. I had like I had a fake ID, and I was going to proper full-on raves at like like Stearns was a was a uh, was a place where where I used to go it was an old mansion house converted into like a real underground like proper vibe if anyone not if anyone listening used to go there they'll know what it was like it was like sweat from the ceilings like loads of different weird rooms and and people just sort of yeah doing their thing so yeah, I, I was sort of going out, and at the same time, yeah, I was I was into DJing, and so it sort of went hand in hand, really. Okay, for the people that are listening now, uh, for the younger generation, what would be the biggest comparison to the raving you just described to now, or is there a comparison? Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose like in the north of England, there's some there's some really cool. I mean, I suppose it it was different because it was. It was a very sort of new and fresh scene. Obviously, like now, new dance music's been around probably for, you know, 30 odd years or something like that, even longer. But in the UK, maybe like getting on for 30 years. So, but then it was like really fresh and like uh, and exciting. But new music's exciting as well, don't get me wrong. So, there's places in like Sheffield, Leeds, Manchester, and some of the, the sort of underground clubs up there like tank and emission and and places like that uh i would say uh, are the most similar like yeah the vibe is just just really people letting loose it's, it's funny you mentioned the north raving scene because um i've had uh, i've had a couple of djs on this show to who have spoken about they're all from north and they were spo- they, you know they were from like the, the recent baseline era in the early or the late uh, 20s and um there always seems to have been a movement up north which kind of funnels its way down somehow uh, and, I, and I think that's still the case today there is that the, the base the baseline theme which is now almost coming commercial uh, has has moved its way into has moved its way into the charts and that's all originated from up north and maybe Bristol as well um, yeah. they're very pioneering in, in in the music industry do you think London has still a, a part to play in, in in the trends of music now or is London just oh, following? Yeah. No, no, definitely a million percent. Like London does does help lead the way. I just find that there's more clubs that focus. I mean, for me as a DJ, I tend to get more work in Sheffield, Leeds, Manchester, and them type of areas than I do in for brand new music in London playing like upfront bass music. But when I tend to play in London, I'm playing more like old school or classics, but that's only my experience. Like I'm sure other DJs have, have completely different experiences in that, but that that's just what I witnessed. But, um, but London has always been a pioneer, a pioneer. And, and even I'm from the South coast and like, we've always had a really vibrant scene on the South coast. And there's always been things, for instance, I used to run nights in Bognor Regis and we used to have EZ, Todd Edwards, Matt Jamlin, Mont, Scott Garcia, and, and all the sort of really wicked sort of DJ names, Grant Nelson. And, um, and people used to travel down from London to go to this night. Cause it was just like a really cool, you know, vibes and things. So, 
when you find a club that's that's like that, you you tend to support it. <laughs> I do anyway. Yeah, no, it's it's quite it's quite refreshing to hear that. And I, and I got to mirror what you were saying about London because it's the same in our experience as well. When you go down to London, it's not about necessarily pushing for for us um, for us anyway it's not about pushing new music you you find that the classics and the currents are working a lot better but i guess again it's it's just our experience as well so let's go back to where 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 you were as so you were introduced to the rave scene you'd been introduced to the, the whole dj concept what then happened yeah. what was the next step for for ed so basically there was a, a few different things so i started working while i was at school um when you know when you do like work experience at school and you go to a company and like find a work placement yeah that so, still happens <laughs> yeah yeah i'm not sure if it, <laughs> yeah so you you went to work for a couple of weeks and and got some sort of life experiences so anyway i started working in a record shop in my local town and they took me on as a work experience person which was really good i sort of learned i obviously got the the less glamorous jobs <laughs> uh it, it, working with uh, in a record shop so it was a lot of the cataloging and stacking and that type of thing but after because I was so into it and I by this time I did have a bit of knowledge and I was already DJing and stuff I got a Saturday job there so whilst I was doing that and while I was at school I also started doing for instance like I had birthday parties where I'd hire out a local village hall and literally we would go down there with my decks and cause carnage like people would gate crash and they'd they'd be they're supposed to be like small parties for like 25 people literally in village halls and and it it end up being quite a lot more oh, all outraged because they knew <laughs> I would have loved to have seen like their 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 reaction like the people in charge at that, that hall when, when they just turned uh, out <laughs> trust me I've got lifetime bans from some of the local <laughs> 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 I got a bit too too messy <laughs> <laughs> um excuse me um you um you promised 25 people um <laughs> I, I could just see their minds going in overload, like you know, and I'm, I'm picturing them dressed in like their you know woolen jumpers and their grey trousers and old school Clark shoes, you know. Yeah, no, not good, mate. Not good. <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a very different point, I, you've just reminded me of work experience, and <laughs> I'm going to go off point here, but I've got to tell this story. My first experience, um, well, my first work experience was in a lawyer's firm. Because, you know, as a kid, uh, as an Asian kid anyway, it was, you know, you, you become a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist. And so I, I, did a, I did this stint in a lawyer's firm. And I kid you not, Ed, it was just full of bitching women. And that was my first experience, experience of, like, office bitching and office yeah. politics. To the point, and this is just so random and I'm digressing, but this actually happened. There was two girls who actually hated each other in the office and they would bicker and they're trying to get the better of each other. And one day uh, we, we, we got into the office and one of the girls just started screaming and looking at the bin. There was a rat in her bin. Not good. The other girl had actually bought a rat and put it in the bin. So then it was my, it was a little baby rat, right? <laughs> so it was then I was given, obviously, work experience rat. I was given the uh, responsibility of dealing with this rat. And <laughs> all I did was take the bin out and leave it outside. And this is a really sad story because I went out to it afterwards and the rat was dead. Oh. I, I don't think it was a, I don't, I don't, don't think it was an, an outdoor rat. But me being 16, 15, 16, I was like, fuck, what, 
what have I just done? I've just killed a rat. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Working experience, mate. It says a lot about it. It says, yeah, it's good times, mate. Yeah, good times. Really good times. Um, or especially if, you know, just try not to kill a rat. Um, so what was the record shop you were working at? Is it still, is it still running? Is it still no, going? No, no. So what happened was it was a, it was a record shop called Peach Flavor. Um, and what actually happened was that it, it ended up closing down um, after a while. And then from there, um, I by this time, I'd already worked there for quite a long time and had the knowledge and, I would, uh, and my sort of my job, uh, my job requirements by this time, I knew how to, how to do orders. I knew how to sell. I knew basically how to run it. I'd been like, you know, I'd been, I was so into it. I made sure that I, I'd, really really paid attention and and had made some contacts already so it closed down and i was like record shops you know at this time there was nothing in but there was nothing for like this town was in the middle of like brighton and portsmouth so there was nothing for like well i suppose 30 miles at least each way and people were like you know djing at this time was just sort of kicking off so uh, what happened was i ended up uh trying to get a loan to start a record shop i couldn't get one and then finally we like my mum managed to borrow some money to buy a car no one would give us money to to actually start a business she had to literally put her house on the line um as uh, as security and we borrowed this money and with the money to buy the car we actually started this business right. uh, okay okay it, 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 you know it was a little bit it was a little bit sort of dodgy at the time um, but it was it was a, that must have been a really nice commitment from your mum that must have been like you know it must have gave you more focus to try and make this work it, it, do, do you know what it was like when when we sort of like because what happened was as well I was trying to go everyone I was trying going to these banks and everyone was just saying no 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 so I actually I started trying I looked at different ways and means so I started doing the prince's trust which is which is obviously a fabulous thing for for people to you know have don't have means to start businesses to to get involved in so I was doing it and I'd actually got so far down the line i'd been accepted to have a prince's trust loan but with that came certain other commitments and certain workloads um so when we got off of this thing we 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 sort of we decided to take it but literally yeah i mean i thank i thank my lucky stars every day that that my family had the belief in me uh, and you know, if you're if you're listening and you're a mum and mum or dad, have the belief in your children to like really follow their dreams. Because for me, it just it you know it their salute to me, if you like, really spurred me on. And because I knew that if it went if it went dodgy, if it went Pete Tong, um, that we'd really be in, you know, problems with, with, um, with paying it back. It made me super committed. Like at that time I was just head down working, you know, my mates were going out and getting trolleyed all the time. And I was literally going to clubs with a piece of, with a pen and a pad and I was writing down things. There was no Shazam then, was there? (laughs) Yeah, there was no Shazam then, mate. I was like, I was like writing down figures, getting, you know, working out how I could use my knowledge to try and make the money back for the shop, you know. So I had an opportunity and I was like, right, I'm not going to go and get off my nut. I've got 
you know, I've got to be sensible, like, and 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 put in the hours and put in the effort to to make do everything in my control to make this happen. You know, that's really um, it's really interesting. You mentioned uh, the parents' influence because one common theme that I, I'm that I, I'm, I'm finding is with myself as well is you know the involvement of your parents in in make, in, in going into this industry uh, and doing whatever because I come from the opposite side I come from having a generation of parents who don't necessarily know the music industry very well and bless them it's not as if you know they, they wanted to they didn't want me to do it they just didn't yeah. understand the industry did your yeah. mum did any, either of your parents understand the industry did any were any no, of them no, no. in the industry. No, basically what, what their advice was to me was like you spend so much of your time working like in your life. If you can find a job that you love doing and you're happy, happiness comes above money on, you know, be happy and do something you love doing rather than be rich and do something you don't like doing like because you're going to be doing it every day. So... So that, that they were always like, try and find something that, that you that you're good at, that that you love doing, and try and and see if there's a way that you can make that work. And and they instilled that from me from an early age, literally. And and I was very, I, you know, I know that I'm very very lucky because there are there were at that time people that were much much more skillful than I were. Um, especially on the decks um, and with music that didn't have that support and then didn't have the opportunities that I had. So for some reason, like, I was, like, highly, highly blessed. And, like, even now, I spend a moment of the day just being thankful for, like, the opportunities I've had. So, um, But I think that still shows, like, from my perception of you as well, it makes sense because... I know many people that work hard in this industry and none more so than yourselves. And that makes sense now. You, you still have that ethos. You still work tirelessly. You're always on the grind. And I, and that kind of makes sense where that comes from. So big up Ed's parents. Um, what's big, that? Up, big, I'm up. big up my stepdad and big up my dad and, and my stepmom as well, who, who, who like at times as well stepped in. Uh, there, was, there was a mad time. When I was at the shop, I was also part of this studio collective and we all basically chipped in. It's called Airtight Studios. Um, we all chipped in a little bit of money and, and sort of pulled together our resources and all got like bought some equipment, got a little like uh, unit and all sort of paid subs to, to so so you know we found a way to make that happen. This was before I met Jim as well. Um, but the turning point was when a guy, one of my old uh, customers at a record shop, um, who I'd got to know for a while, came into my shop, and it's a weird story. But he had he had a lot of musical equipment because back in the day. You could not. You didn't have laptops with uh, Ableton Logic or Fruity Loops. You needed fifteen to twenty grand to get a studio set up. Like you needed, you know, you needed a mixing desk. You needed an Akai. Akai's were like that's a sampler. They were like two or three grand. Um, and you needed an Atari ST, and you needed some reverb units, which weren't cheap. And you needed so you needed a lot. So anyway, this guy. He knew about my passion, like, I, I would stay up, like, all night, and, and you know, it, people could, you, you, you can tell when passion's not fake about something, and, and anyway, he was a really great customer. 
he'd had he'd had some very serious health issues and he was actually he was only a young guy maybe like 30 i don't know where he'd made his money from to actually buy his equipment but anyway he was going off to become a monk like as you do uh, as you do literally i think he was going to tibet or something he was going off to become a monk he had all this equipment like thousands and thousands of pounds worth and he said to me he came in and said look I'm going off. I'm going to become a monk. I do not need any real money. I've got all this stuff. And I do need some money because I need to, like, I don't know, I suppose, I can't even remember, but it was probably to buy his flights to where he was going and just sort out the last bits of his, like, removals or whatever. So he was like, I've got all this stuff. You can literally have it pretty much for an absolute fraction of the cost of what it was worth. What are the chances? But then I guess, you know, it, it's kind of like a... a, a you can, I, I kind of see that as like an omen. Like you're, all your hard work and all the pressure and all the commitment that you've actually put through, this is kind of like a little omen that's come your way. Like, here you go. Yeah, it was, it was weird. It was weird. And, and literally as well, at that time, I didn't have any money. I Like, even for the little amount of money that he wanted, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have it. So my real dad... And my stepmom actually at that point stepped in and said, look, we'll lend you some money, but you've got to pay it back. And and that was their time where they said, like, we believe you and you were. Because obviously I had sort of two separate families at, at that point. Um, so and and so they stepped in at a time when it was really important. So, yeah, another reason for me to be... Like, <laughs> so yeah, everyone like helped play a part, and and the belief was strong. So how old were you at this point? I actually started the record shop when I was seventeen. Right. Okay. So at the time, I was actually at college. Like, so I did my. I was I was working my Saturdays. I was at college. I knew I wanted to do music, and I was already doing gigs at this point because I'd I'd by this I suppose my first I got my first set of decks when I was I think twelve or thirteen. So I've been. DJing, I've been working at this other record shop and I was actually at college working on like I suppose normal job stuff so I was working on A-levels and I dropped out of college to, to pursue music Okay, so then once uh, obviously the, the monk left and uh, went to went to Tibet or wherever yeah. you were now in possession of all this amazing, this amazing technology, like this technology at yeah. this point. Yeah. So previous to that, as I said, I was part of Airtight Studios, and there were some other people like Friction from Radio One was also a member of 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 it at, at the same time as well. And yeah, it was quite a good little bubbling scene. So, so what happened then at that stage? Then I I found someone to replace what my my share of the uh, the Airtight. So someone else stepped in, and then I set up a studio at the back of my record shop in one of the, in like a tiny little room like one of the storerooms okay so compare a studio then to a studio now because i think what the studios that we're all exposed to <clears throat> excuse me what we're all exposed to are these very high-tech luminous lights like two three speakers on either side keyboards and a computer <laughs> basically yeah. you know maybe maybe a couple more things what, what is a studio like then so it was like you you had like you had you spoke about the akai and everything but what was was it the dynamics different um it it took longer to do things 
like I mean, for instance, you couldn't, you didn't have hard, you didn't have hard drives. You had floppy disks. So when you wanted a kick drum sound, now we can just, I mean, you can just go and get a sample pack and like whack a kick drum in, and you've got about a million to choose from. Then you had to like really, you probably had to sample a kick drum off another record. And then you had to store that sound on a floppy disk. And you could only have, like, literally a few sounds up at the same time. And that's why lots of people had, like, multiple synthesizers or rack-mounted, like, units where, you know, you could only get one or two sounds out of each item. And then you, you routed all those through into a mixing desk, and then you recorded it onto uh, a dat machine a dat tape that's how you you know that and you used to have to send off tapes in the post so if someone wanted a record you couldn't send them an email with that song on you send them a dat tape via post <laughs> with the track on it's so interesting even me listening right now i am fascinated with how how, how it was you know and how it is now it, it couldn't be it couldn't be so further apart. Uh, well, let's continue that story on. So you were in a position where you, what you started producing, you actually started sampling and, and making music. Yeah. So, so what, what happened? We, I was working with a guy called Richard Scott originally, and we were, we were just, we were just sort of discovering technology. It was wicked. Like, it, you know, so we were just learning how to, you, so you didn't have tutorials. You didn't have YouTube tutorials back then. You didn't have any of that. So, you just used to have to fiddle. <laughs> like, literally, you used to get your hands dirty and just start, you know, these manuals were, when I say thick, like, they were like, they were like encyclopedia thick. It was Full just on Bibles. Technical knowledge that you just, <laughs> like, it, it wasn't my key point of learning, reading manuals. So I just used to like, you know, there were some things if I really had to do, I would look up in it. But I just used to fiddle and we just used to experiment and muck around with the kit that we had, and, you know, just trying to trying to get a vibe. And I mean, I spent I spent a, probably half a day or a day just getting a beat in time. Like literally it was exciting, but also painful at times. (laughs) I can imagine. I can imagine the whole process of music production back then and music creation being very... Patience had to be a strong point of an individual who who did it. But then at the same time, the rewards were were a lot different to today as well. And, you know, let's let's just take money out the equation because money was obviously... You know, you can make a lot more money off of, of the sales of a record back then. But let's take money out the equation and let's just look at the fulfillment and and the 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 actual feeling of uh, success once a track has been made what was your first ever track that you put out oh i think it was um i think it was a drum and bass record you know i'm pretty sure it was a hard evidence drum and bass record or a hardcore record maybe something on i used to do uh, a lot of sort of hardcore ravey like obviously at that time garage wasn't really around like garage wasn't invented at that time so it was like rave music so what was it 150 bpm yeah like yeah even, yeah but like i mean between 140 i suppose and one or one yeah probably 140 to like 170 it was like drum and bass like drum and bass ravey type speed so i was signed to a few sort of rave labels this was before me and jim started working together and i was working with a guy once i got my own studio i started collaborating with a few people and i was working with a guy called austin reynolds who was a really big he, he'd produced sesame street which was a big number like it was a rave record that i went remember i remember 
But wow. he was also an engineer for like suburban bass and and like some of the really cool rave things, and he really knew what was going on. And he, he before I'd met Jim, he we were doing some stuff together, which was which was yeah. Which Wait, was really I want to stop you there, Ed, because I want everyone listening right now. If you haven't heard the Sesame Street drum and bass kind of like remix that we're talking about, go and Google it because it's phenomenal. Oh, that was brilliant. Okay, um, going back slightly, Ed, you said you were signed to a couple of rave levels by this point. How did you get signed? Mate, it, it was when you were sending out demos of tracks, obviously, as I said, you didn't have emails. So you used to send cassette tapes. Now I used to I used to spend a whole day just so you take the DAT tape and then you would um, you'd plug it into a tape real time. So if a song lasted seven minutes, it would take you know seven minutes to record, and you'd have to buy the tapes, which were I suppose a pound each, and then you'd have to send the tape, which was probably another pound, and a pound was worth obviously more back then. Yeah, I was about to say that. And when you're a struggling guy, like trying to really make ends meet and do anything to do to, to you know, pay off debts and loans and everything, it was like you had to make sure everyone counted. And, and I used to send off like literally 50 or 100 tapes and not hear anything back. Uh, but then, you know what? It was just a case of not giving up. And it was putting yourself, it's the same as it is now, putting yourself in a place where you can't be ignored. So, so for instance, with my record shop, I was selling, I was selling tickets for events, local events and raves. And that sort of increased. People used to travel long ways to get to big raves. They used to do massive raves in like Milton Keynes, things like Dreamscape and Helter Skelter. And so we used to run coaches and it meant that we had to speak to people at these companies and, after a period of time, you're like, you know, I've sent some demos in. Did you get it? And 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 then reps used to come in and drop off like tape packs and tapes, and then and then that was an opportunity to like go, hey mate, listen to this, and then you, I could play people like stuff, and it, it was just a question of getting out and about because what I find is sometimes with producers is I know producers that are phenomenal, but they never have any music out because they. Don't, they spend all their time in the studio and no time networking or actually putting it into people's hands that could make a difference. Even from back then, it was a question of getting getting music into people's hands. And now it's even harder because obviously we all know we've got inboxes with thousands of emails and promos and stuff. So it was different back then, but there are ways that you can, you know, network and, and Looking at your networking skills this day and age is for for an up and coming producer or a DJ is is vital. It, it's also you know being an up and coming DJ in this day and age. I would have thought it's it's a great time to be one because of the accessibility of social media, because of the ability to produce and how accessible. Say like you know, going back to a kick drum or a synth or you know you can do it on your laptop. You can sit there with a small MIDI keyboard and get it all done on your laptop. I want to move away from music for just a second. Ed, when I was uh, kindly invited by yourself around to the Wide Boy Studio, great honour for me, I couldn't help but notice your in interest in combat sports and martial arts. Yes, 
Yes. Uh, when, um, you know, what kind of combat sports are you into? And you know, where where were you with that? Because I remember seeing the the human that you know I kept punching <laughs> loads of times. <laughs> so yeah, just to let everyone know. So in my in my garden, um, I've got a sort of six foot. Um, punch bag that looks like a man who goes by the name of Frank and basically the rules <laughs> is as as when you pass Frank it's fixed for um, shadow man boxing bag uh, you have to give him a little dig um, otherwise he's <laughs> very gross well um, yeah it's, it's just it's, it's just culture now isn't it it's tradition <laughs> Frank needs a dig <laughs> so, so yeah so I train in kickboxing in Kung Fu and I actually do uh, I've got four black belts with it within them uh, I've got three um, I'm a third degree kickboxer and I'm a first degree in Kung Fu and yeah I, I still train every week I actually run a class to do something other than music and to uh, to sort of help people in the community and to get off my chair I teach martial arts as well so yeah it's a big big and a lot of my like values and principles and sort of work ethic have like have been developed alongside my martial arts I've been blessed to have a, a very a couple of very very good teachers and it was something funny that you uh, or something interesting something that stuck with me that you said was that uh, the martial arts uh, you needed that shit if you were in the UK garage scene <laughs> oh mate trust me back in the day man I used to go to some very very murky clubs like yeah and... we talk about the, yeah let's talk about the garage scene yeah so then, so when you first entered it you, yeah. I, I'm guessing you were you were with Jim and it was the Y Boys or not? Yes, it was. Yeah. So 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 what happened with me and Jim? So we were doing. So obviously, we Jim was like very successful in the like the rave in the rave before we started um, making tracks together. He was doing really well in the sort of the rave and sort of like the trancey like hard house vibes. But we both had a very we both had a love for like sort of the more funky music and um, Jim was into like masters of work and people like that. And I was into um, from the record shop was into sort of like early sort of techno and, and stuff like that as well. So, so we had loads of different influences and then people, what happened was people started coming into my shop and were like, Oh, have you got, have you got this? Have you got any of this garage music that's going around? And I was like, I was like, no, what's that? And this was sort of like, I suppose, I suppose ninety six, ninety, yeah, probably ninety six, ninety seven. I was like, no. And so I started researching it and started finding out about it and found a real, real connection with it because it had the sort of the bass lines from sort of drum and bass at that time jungle I suppose it was called it was called but it also had like the vocals and yeah really wicked beats so yeah started getting it and and I mean Jim started making it and we just loved it and I think I think Garage has had that on a lot of people, including me. I mean, I was so it was '98 when I first got into Garage, and I was 13. Uh, yeah. And bear in mind that the music that was, you know, that was thrown into my face a lot of that time was the, you know, Cause, Bewitch, S Club Seven. Yeah, that, that was. I mean, every kid is brought up on whatever they're. Yeah, whatever they're shown on TV or whatever the friends are listening to, but for some reason, I mean, I was always brought up on a, a various 
genre of music, whether it be like Prodigy or it was Fuji's, you know, on their first album, or Bob Marley, because my dad was a massive Bob Marley fan. And, oh, um, Big up the Bob. <laughs> yeah, big up, big up the Bob. Um, so I was always, Garage got me, and I'm just trying to think, when was my first experience and when was my first taste of Garage music? I think it was one of the kids at school in a year above me. They were really into, uh, they, they, had a, they had a tape, a Garage Nation tape. And I was fast. I was like, what's this? What's this Garage Nation tape? He's like, yeah, it was a, it's a tape pack. You know, it sounded really cool. I got a tape pack. And I was like, right, I, I, I've really got to get hold of a tape pack. So there was a there was a record shop uh, called Five HQ in Leicester. I don't know if you. Yeah, heard. yeah, I know, I know, I, I know Five HQ. Yeah. yeah. So Five HQ was uh, the one that was nearest to me, and I went there, and 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 obviously it was twenty pounds for a pack of eight Garage Nation tapes, or whether it would be Sun City or La Cosa Nostra or Garage yeah. Mania, and twenty pound back then, Ed. What, what would you say that is now? Ninety eight. Right. So. That, that was that was a lot of pocket money, mate. Trust me. <laughs> I think it was beyond pocket money, mate. Because I went to my mum and dad. I was like, "Look, I really want this," and they're like, "Okay, fine. You save up for three weeks, and and we'll do it." So I did, and I don't know how, but going back to how Garage just captivates someone as a thirteen-year-old boy, it got me, and it had me even to this day. It's got me. Yeah, uh, and I think the beauty of Gary's music is that, and I think the bass lines were were it. I mean, it was my first experience of a bass line like that. Yeah. So we go back to uh, you, you've you've become accustomed now to Gary's music. Um, yeah. And so, so what happened then? By this, by the time that Gary, we were into Garage, we were already well established in how we get music out. Was it was how, it under the Wide Boys label? Yeah. At, at that time, we didn't have a label. It wasn't until a little bit later that we started a label. But we were we were just we knew we were part of other labels. So our plan was. Let's try and get on the best garage labels that are going at that time. And there were there were basically five there were five labels that were doing it, which were Public Demands, Locked On, Social Circles. Um, that was Stickies, right? Uh, yes, yeah, it was like Sticky and Jason K. And there was uh, Dubs for Clubs and uh, Union Jack. They, they there was like there was a core. So our plan was, let's try and get a release on every one of them labels and see what happens. And we basically, we just we just did it. And it, and it wasn't easy. I remember with, with the track that got signed to Social Circles, that was, even at that point, that was, I sent out probably 100 tapes. And I only heard back from a couple of labels, because these were new contacts as well. Like, you know, you couldn't, you, you couldn't just, it was difficult to track down, you know, record labels had addresses, but it didn't mean that they were going to listen to your music if you sent them a tape. Um, and they probably had hundreds of tapes coming in themselves, being, you know, quite cool labels. And, yeah, we just got, I just got a call from Jason K just going, yep, love this, love this. Like, let's try and do something with it. What was the track? Do you remember? Uh, Stand and Deliver. Okay, okay, now we're talking. Um, yeah, so he, he, he we, we'd already had a couple of Garage releases at this point, but he was like, this was like a step up. Um, and yeah, and we were like, right. Like, because on that label, you had Sticky, Zed Bias, 
um, and some 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 big like players at that time, and we were like flipping over. Yeah, we've 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 done it. Literally, we've we've made it. <laughs> we've That's made it. it. <laughs> so so and then yeah, and then and we we just we just set our goal and we just worked towards it and just kept chipping away until it until until it happened really and so when it actually did happen were you uh i'm guessing you were still obviously into the dj and you were djing garage at this point right yeah yeah so pretty much as soon as i started as soon as I made the transition from raven drum and bass to garage i stopped because the love just hit me so hard for it, I stopped DJing. Um, I stopped DJing other styles and just played garage. Although I did have like, I'd look for weird records that I could do weird. Like, for instance, I'd take a record that should be played on a forty at forty five on a speed on a deck, and I'd slow it down to a thirty three. So I might play like a drum and bass record at the wrong speed at a garage tempo garage yeah it was like i'd look for weird things like that to try and be different from what other people were doing because it was an era where it's kind of a lost era now where you know people went to see djs because a dj would do something special that other people didn't whether that would be like slowing down a track like what you said or have a bootleg or have a remix in today's age that doesn't really exist anymore it's a lost art because everyone has access to the same things yeah, I, I think the only way to do it now is to to make your own music and just be like and and just play play your own stuff or versions of your own stuff um, and be sort of exclusive in that way. If you wanted a record that no one else had, so say you say I made a record yep. on, on in in the week and I wanted to play that, CDJs weren't invented at this point you no, couldn't yep. play a cd player you couldn't mix they didn't have pitch control so i mean you could use a cd hi-fi cd thing but no clubs had just hi-fi players that you could just whack a cd on so you had decks so the you had only to get it pressed right you had to get a vinyl pressed yeah, you had to get a dub plate press which was a one-off record that they would press in very special places in london and they would cost anywhere between 30 to like 80 quid unless you were a very successful dj you only had a few dub plates like but they would be your weapons that no one else had like literally they would be your your absolute ammo and that's how people were making names for themselves and and for instance so there was a select few there was people like luck and knee and sticky and various other people and we'd send each other dats so that we could go and get our dub plates of just only a few people would have those things. And, like, it, it was a very, very cool time. I can imagine. I can, I can also imagine the feeling of actually playing that and getting a reaction. You're like, yeah, this is, yeah, this is what I'm doing this for. This is, yeah. this is so rewarding. So we're in the era of, of dub plates and bootlegs, and we're in the era of DJ power. I'm saying that as in, like, you know, a DJ has pull. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Jason K, actually, because Jason K was my favourite DJ from back then, and I yeah. would always get the tape packs of Jason K on it. And this this now uh, moved slowly. Were you you were the Wide Boys by this point? So the Wide Boys came, uh, that that name came up, we, we came with that fairly quickly um, and sort of really stuck to it, yeah. Yeah, and it worked well with the London scene as well. It's, it's, got, it's got loads of connotations, which is really good. Yeah, 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 no, definitely. And what happened was then, so some of the labels that we were 
some of the labels that we were sort of working with ran nights or were linked to people that had nights. So, you know, a lot of people helped us out back in the day. They were like, you know, even like Matt Jam Lamont and, and Carl Tuffenoff Brown, who were like established people, um, took the time out to like give us advice and and just bring us into like little things that they were doing uh, and and you know and that that's why that's why we try and and do that as well and and, and help the new talent because if if no one gives you a chance then you can't you can't get up the stairs sometimes you need people to help you take the first few steps so yeah true believer in like where you can I mean I know you said at the start of this interview it was very nice to hear that you said you know if you ever if we could be of service to you then you could get on the phone and we'd try and help out yeah I mean that that I don't obviously it's something that's not said a lot but there you know you guys are uh, one of the like one of the front people that if I know that I need some advice even if it could be something really stupid I know I could pick the phone up and call you and you would tell me and you know you've done it before yeah no, definitely, and not. It was people like it was people like Matt Jam, Cole Tuffenoff, Jason Kay, Norris the Boss, um, Jimmy from Public Demand, and like you know these and, and Andy from Locked On who gave us these opportunities and and, uh, and even like there's people that that for instance. So when I used to run the record shop, we used to order our songs from distributors. Now I I sent my one of the the first garage track we sent. Because I, by this time, you know, people had come into the shop and they'd ask for the music. And I was like, right, okay, so we started doing some. So I sent a tape to this guy who worked, just a random guy who worked at a distributor. And alongside, I'd sent it to loads of other labels. And it was due to him that we got signed our first garage record. And it was just a guy that just went out of his way to help us out. Uh, Lee, Lee, his name was. So. Okay, so out of curiosity, with the Garage movement, were you getting bookings outside of London, or was it just the London thing? So, so quite quickly into into it, we start. I started running my own nights. So, what we took in ninety eight or ninety seven? Yeah, probably like yeah ninety six, ninety seven, and I and I was playing. I was playing. So there were nights on the south coast. The south coast was good for for the the UK scene, and uh, there was a guy called Groover Washington who used to run Southern Exposure, which was a wicked, wicked um, night. They used to get before Garage came around. They used to get like Masters of Work, CJ McIntosh, Danny Rampin, people that would play US house music, and we basically me and me and Groove Washington started collaborating and and putting on Garage nights, um, and that's when. Yeah, that's when it all started really, really, really going well. And so then 97, 98 came, uh, and you'd already running established Garage Nights. I'm guessing the Garage scene just went from strength to strength to strength. So therefore your brand became, you know, you were... Your brand went from strength to strength, strength with it because it was only select few in the in the actual scene. You know, these days yeah. in the scene, there's only select few, um, yeah. and you know, you guys were up there. What was it like? Say, like in the, what would you say the peak of UK garage in the nineties was? It, it, in terms of how widespread it was, it was like I suppose between ninety nine and two thousand and one was the flat out like, you know. Was the was the really really mad times, but before that it was like it was very it was cool it was like a wicked scene to be involved in because it was just it wasn't commercial but it, it the music 
would appeal to lots of people. It would it would appeal to your normal standard music person, but it would also appeal to like you really ultra cool people. It would appeal to like the rude rude boys, rude girls. It would appeal to like the more inner city people. It, it just because it had really good beats, really good bass, and also wicked vocals and some elements of rap. It just appealed to so many people. It was, it was, yeah, it was sick, and still is. It still is, yeah. And we're approaching the hour mark. How are you for time, mate? Because I might just split this into a two-parter and get you back on. I'd love to get you back on anyway. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I think, like, yeah, we, um, yeah, we should, we should. Yeah, because well, let's 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 end the uh, let's end the journey of Ed and the White Boys on this point I think it's a good point to end it on uh, on the yeah. scene, and then we've got then we've got the evolution of the white boys because I know for a fact there is there is a hell of a lot more to go but we just we, we just don't have enough time I don't know where the time's gone before we before we end though Ed uh, who's your favourite DJ? Uh, DJ EZ ah, it's, it's a common answer it's a common <laughs> answer <laughs> what I am um, and, and what the, the, the what's really cool is that how EZ has had, had a resurgence in, in, in recent times so the younger generation are actually experiencing the power of EZ and what that man can do yeah because he does what he does, but it's because of also the musical sound that he plays. That's that's my sound. Like, there, there's people like Cuba, who are obviously redonkulously like technical and skillful, and like I would get a lot of inspiration from, but don't necessarily play the music that I love to listen to. So for me, it's it's easy. But I mean, I I just I like the way that he's stuck to his guns and does what he does. On that note, Ed, it has been an absolute honour. Uh, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm not even lying, like, I've learned so much. I've literally been sitting here listening, fascinated with your story. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry if I've been rabbiting on, mate, but yeah. No, um, it's been so, like, it's been an education, man. It's been, it's been this is exactly what this show is about. Uh, and I can't, I can't express how grateful I am to have you on this show. And I want to get you back on, if that's okay. Yeah, no, definitely. We should do part two. But I want to um, say thanks to all the listeners. And uh, yeah, follow your dreams, people. Follow your dreams. Look for the people that can help you out and believe in what you say. And don't worry too much about the haters. Not that we get a lot of hate, but, you know, um, look for the people that help build you, not for the people that just knock you down. And I want to just big ups, like, big ups my family and... Jim Wideboy and our manager Matt, who has also kept us in the game for a very long time. And there are uh, words and, from and the master so. right there. <laughs> and talk, talking about following, Ed, where can people find you online? Yeah, so you can follow us on Facebook. Um, so yeah, just just search Wide Boys, you'll find us. Um, also on Twitter at the Wide Boys. We're on Instagram, Wide Boys Official, and we're on SoundCloud. Wide Boys, and we've also got YouTube Wide Boys TV. So there's there's loads of people, but loads of places you can find us. But just Google us, and uh, yeah, I hope you're enjoying what we're doing today. Yeah, and and on just very briefly as well, one thing I do want to touch on in today's episode is the current state of social media. Ed. Is 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 there a certain social media used the most? And um, my standpoint is. And, the, and and this is something that Jim has always installed. He's like, right, in terms of studio, you need to move with the times. It's no good us. If we'd have just stuck to our guns and just 
had an Akai and an Atari ST and not moved forward, then we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing today. So because we've always tried to keep up with technology, and that's something that Jim has always like pushed for, um, we've we've managed to evolve our studio and our techniques and literally we do YouTube. We watch YouTube tutorials on a weekly basis of new studio techniques and new and, and learning. And so we're constantly learning. You have to either have someone that is capable of or able, you have to try and learn social media yourself otherwise, because it is such an important part. And, and literally there are people that aren't necessarily the most talented musicians or producers or DJs, but are very good at social media, and they seem to be the ones that are... I do very well right now. I would agree. very well. And, and that's because they're using their skills in in the right situation. And, and it's it's worth putting time... So say, say I had five days a week and I was doing three days making music, one day practicing DJing and doing my networking, it would be worth spending the fifth day on social media. Like, obviously, that could be split into a daily basis. You could do five hours in the studio, one hour on social media, and one hour of research, or what, you know, however you split your day. But definitely, like, a good at least the tenth of your time as a new up-and-coming person, I would I would suggest learning more about social media or, or finding someone that you can team up with that is good at that. On that note, guys, uh, I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank Ed for joining us on behalf of the White Boys, uh, a master. Uh, we've just had a masterclass by the master, uh, and there's been a talk of a monk. So there's no coincidence there. Um, <laughs> and I want everyone to uh, get get out Ed on uh, get out Ed on uh, the White Boys social media. Rate, review, subscribe on this podcast. This is an education, uh, a celebration, and an honest account of how we live our lives. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week, and we're going to get Ed back on for part two very soon. Thank you very much, Vosk. Spread love, be kind, and do what you do best. Let it be on social media, at Waski on Twitter, at Waski on Instagram.